Shalom, this is Rabbi Tama Davis Hart from Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue bringing you a teaching on Yeshua the Rabbi. The study of the place of Yeshua in the history of human culture must begin with the Brit Kaddishah. That's the refreshed, renewed covenant, um, miscalled, if you will, the New Testament, on which all subsequent representations have been used. But the presentation of Yeshua in the Brit Kaddishah, as I'll refer to it, from now on, an interpreted representation by those that have an agenda to promote resembles a symbol of paintings more than a photograph. In the decades between the time of the ministry of Yeshua and the composition of the various Gospels, the memory of what Yeshua had said had and done circulated in the form of an oral tradition. The Apostle Shaul, or Paul, writing to the congregation at Corinth in about A.D. 55, that's about 20 years or so after the life of Yeshua, reminded them that during his visit a few years before Yeshua had orally delivered to you as of first importance what I also received concerning the death and resurrection of Yeshua. That's in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-7. Chronologically and even logically, there was a tradition of the church before there was a quote-unquote New Testament or any book of the Brit Kaddishah or New Testament. By the time the materials of the oral tradition found their way into written form, they had passed through the life and experience of the church, which laid claim to the presence of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit of God. It was to the action of that spirit that Christians would attribute the composition of the books of the Brit Kaddishah, or New Testament, as they began to call it, and before that of the Old Testament, as they began to describe the Hebrew Bible. After multiple redactions and translations of the original scripts, Yeshua and the Brit Kaddishah writings have lost their Jewish meanings and intent. This is a big problem. If you start with the wrong foundation, if you will, you will not have a stable house. It's obvious, and yet to judge by the tragedies of later history, not at all obvious, that Yeshua was a Jew so that the first attempts to understand his message took place within the context of Judaism. In today's society, this evident truth is either deliberately obscured or missed altogether. I submit to you it's both. The New Testament was written in Greek, but the language Yeshua and his disciples usually spoke seems to have been Aramaic, a Semitic tongue related to Hebrew, but not identical with it. And there is some debate about whether the New Testament, the Brit Kaddishah, was written in Greek or Hebrew. Aramaic words and phrases are scattered throughout the Gospels and other early Christian books, reflecting the language in which various sayings and liturgical formulas had been repeated before the transition to Greek became complete. These include such familiar words as Hosanna, as well as the cry of dereliction of Yeshua on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that's Mark 15:34. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which in Hebrew of Psalm 22 was Eli, Eli, lama azvabtani. Alongside Emmanuel, God with us, the Hebrew title given to the child in the prophecy of Isaiah 7:14, and applied by Matthew 1:23 to Yeshua, but not used to address him except in the apostrophes as the medieval antiphon, veni, veni Emmanuel, that forms the epigraph to this chapter, 
Four Aramaic words appear as titles for Yeshua. Rabbi, or teacher. Amen, or prophet, Messiah, or Christ. And Mar, or Lord. So the most neutral and least controversial of these words is probably Rabbi, along with the related Rabboni. Except for two passages, the Gospels apply the Aramaic word only to Yeshua. And if we conclude that the title, quote-unquote, teacher, or master, which is a didaskalos in Greek, was intended as a translation of that Aramaic name, it seems safe to say that it was Rabbi that Yeshua was best known and addressed. Yet, the Gospels seem to accentuate the differences rather than the similarities between Yeshua and other rabbis. As the scholarly study of the Judaism of his time has progressed, however, both the similarities and the differences have become clearer, but have yet failed to filter down to the rank and file or the Christian ministers proclaiming from the pulpits. Luke tells us in 4.16-30, through 30, that after his mikvah, or his baptism, the temptation by Hasatan, he, quote, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and he went to the synagogue as his custom was, on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, unquote. Following the customary rabbinical pattern, he took up a scroll of the Hebrew Bible, read it, presumably provided an Aramaic translation, paraphrase of the text, and then commented on it. The words he read were from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, unquote. But instead of doing what a rabbi would normally do, apply the text to the hearers by comparing and contrasting earlier interpretations, he declared, quote, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Unquote. Now, although the initial reaction to this audacious declaration was said to be wonderment, quote, at gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, unquote, his further explanation produced the opposite reaction, and everyone was, quote, filled with wrath, unquote. Now, behind the confrontations between Yeshua as rabbi and the representatives of the rabbinical tradition, the affinities are nevertheless clearly discernible in the forms in which his teachings appear in the Gospels. One of the most familiar is the question and answer, with the question often phrased as a teaser of sorts. A woman had seven husbands, in series, not parallel. Whose wife will she be in the life to come? That's in Matthew 22, 23 through 33. Is it lawful for a devout Jew to pay taxes to the Roman authorities? Matthew 22, 15 through 22. And what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mark 10, 17 through 22. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Matthew 18, 1 through 6. And the one who puts the question acts as the straight man, setting up the opportunity for Rabbi Yeshua to drive home the point, often by standing the question on its head. Go, Rabbi Yeshua. To the writers of the Brit Kaddishah, or New Testament, however, the most typical form of the teachings of Yeshua was the parable. Quote, 
He said nothing to them without a parable, unquote. Matthew 13, 34. But the Greek word parabole was taken from the Septuagint, the Jewish translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. So here too, the evangelist accounts of Yeshua as a teller of parables makes sense only in the setting of his Jewish background. Interpreting his parables on the basis of that setting alters conventional explanations of his comparisons between the kingdom of God and all incidents from human life. So the point of the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, better called the parable of the elder brother, is in the closing words of the father to the elder brother, who stands for the people of Israel, quote, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to make Mary and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found, unquote. This historic covenant between God and Israel was and is permanent. It wasn't to this covenant that the other peoples too were now being introduced. The oscillation between describing the role of Yeshua as rabbi and attributing to him a new and unique authority made additional titles unnecessary. Made, made them necessary, rather. One such was prophet, as in the acclamation of Psalm Sunday in Matthew 21, quote, this is the prophet Yeshua from Nazareth of Galilee, unquote. Probably the most intriguing version of it is once again in Aramaic, Revelation 3.14. Quote, the words of the Amen, A-M-E-I-N, the faithful and true witness, unquote. The word Amen was the formula of affirmation to end a prayer, as in the farewell charge of Moshe to the people of Israel where each verse concludes in Deuteronomy 27, 14 through 26, quote, and all the people shall say Amen, unquote. In the New Testament, an extension of the meaning of Amen, A-M-E-N, becomes evident in the Sermon on the Mount, Amen, Lego, Hymen, truly I say to you, some 75 times throughout the four Gospels, Amen introduces an authoritative pronouncement by Yeshua, as the one who had the authority to make such pronouncements, Yeshua was the prophet. The word prophet here means chiefly not one who foretells, although the sayings of Yeshua do contain many predictions, but one who is authorized to speak on behalf of another and to tell forth. In the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua is quoted as asserting Matthew 5:17 through 18, quote, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill them. For the truly, amen, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, that's not a, a jot or tittle is another way to say that, will pass from the law until all is accomplished, unquote. Now that affirmation of the permanent validity of the law of Moshe is followed by a series of specific quotations from the law, each introduced with the formula, quote, you have heard that it was said to the men of old, unquote. Each such quotation is then followed by a commentary opening with a magisterial formula, quote, but I say to you, Matthew 5, 21 through 48. The commentary is an intensification of the commandment to include not only its outward observance, 
but the inward spirit and motivation of the heart. That's law and grace. That's an inextricable relationship throughout God's Torah. We're not all grace. He is not all grace. He is not all love. He is love, grace, justice, righteousness, truth. All these commentaries are an elaboration of the warning that the righteousness of the followers of Yeshua must exceed that of those who followed other doctors of the law. Matthew 5.20 The conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount confirms the special status of Yeshua as not only rabbi but prophet. Quote, uh, this is Matthew 7.28 uh, through 8.1. Quote, and when Yeshua finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Unquote. Then there come several miracle stories. The New Testament does not attribute the power of performing miracles only to Yeshua and his followers, Matthew 12:27, but it does cite the miracles as substantiation of his standing as rabbi and prophet. That identification of Yeshua was a means both of affirming his continuity with the prophets of Israel and of asserting his superiority to them as the prophet, capital P, whose coming they had predicted and to whose authority they had been prepared to yield. In Deuteronomy 18, 15-22, God tells Moshe, and through him, the people, that he, quote, will raise up for them a prophet like me from among you, quote, unquote, to whom the people are to pay heed. In its biblical context, this is the authorization of Joshua, or Yehoshua, as the legitimate successor of Moshe. But in the New Testament and later Christian writers, the prophet to come is taken to be Yeshua, Joshua, Yehoshua. He is portrayed as the one prophet in whom the teaching of Moshe was fulfilled and yet superseded. The one rabbi who both satisfied the law of Moshe and transcended it. For, quote, the law was given through Moshe, grace and truth came through Yeshua HaMashiach. Unquote. That's John 1.17. To describe such a revelation of grace and truth, the categories of rabbi and prophet were necessary but weren't sufficient. Therefore, Later, anti-Muslim Christian apologists would find Islam's identification of Yeshua as a great prophet and forerunner to Muhammad to be inadequate and hence inaccurate so that the potential of the figure of Yeshua the prophet as a meeting ground between Christians and Muslims have never fully been realized. For rabbi and prophet yielded to two other categories each of them likewise expressed in an Aramaic word, and then in its Greek translation, Messias, the Aramaic form of Messiah, translated into Greek as Ho Christos, Christ there, the Anointed One, John 1.41 and 4.25, and Marana, our Lord, in the liturgical formula, Maranatha, our Lord come, translated into Greek, Translated into Greek as Ho Kiros, the future belonged to these titles, to the identification of him as the Son of God and the Christian second person of the Trinity. The Trinity, by the way, does not exist. He is not three separate people in one. He is a complex, compound unity. 
think of yourself uh, in, in that context. You might be a, a son, a father, a friend, a brother, and you do not separate yourself into those pieces when you need to enact that particular role. You act according to the role that you are living at the time. But in the process of establishing themselves, Christ and Lord, as well as even rabbi and prophet, often lost much of their Semitic content. To the believers, disciples of the first century, the conception of Yeshua as rabbi was self-evident. To the Christian disciples of the second century, it was embarrassing. To the Christian disciples of the third century and beyond, it was obscure. The beginnings of this de-Judaization of Christianity are visible already within the New Testament. And I did do a, a four or five part series uh, on these podcasts about the separation of Christianity from Judaism. You may want to take a look at that for more information. With Shaul's decision to, quote, turn to the Gentiles, unquote, in Acts 13.46, after having begun his preaching in the synagogues, and then with the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, the Christian movement increasingly became Gentile rather than Jewish in its constituency and outlook and was finally complete under Constantine in 325 CE, who changed God's times and festivals to pagan Hellenistic observances in the attempt to remake the gospel into a Gentile one. I'm going to say that one again. Constantine in 325 CE changed God's times and festivals to pagan Hellenistic observances in an attempt to remake the gospel into a Gentile one. Here we have Christianity bringing in Easter and Christmas to make the state religion, if you will, more popular. In that setting, the Jewish elements of the life of Yeshua had to be explained to Gentile readers. For example, John 2.6. The Acts of the Apostles can be read as a tale of two cities in its first chapter, with Yeshua and his disciples after the resurrection, is set in Jerusalem. But its last chapter reaches its climax with the final voyage of the Apostle Shaul, or Paul, in the simple but pulse-quickening sentence, quote, and so we came to Rome, unquote. Recently, scholars have not only put the picture of Yeshua back into the setting of the first century Judaism, they've also rediscovered the Jewishness of the New Testament, and particularly of Shaul or Paul. There is a scripture that says he will be misunderstood to the destruction of many. That's paraphrasing it. His epistle to the Romans 9 through 11 is the description of his struggle over the relation between the Gentile church and synagogue, concluding with the prediction and the promise, quote, and so all Israel will be saved, unquote. Not that it should be converted to Christianity, but saved because, in, Yish in Shaul's words, quote, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Romans 11, 26 through 9. This reading of the mind of Shaul in Romans gives special significance to his many references to the name of Yeshua there. From, quote, descended from David according to the flesh, Yeshua, Messiah, our Lord, Unquote. In the first chapter, to quote the preaching of Yeshua Messiah, unquote, which quote is now disclosed and through the prophetic writings as made known to all nations. Unquote. In the final sentence, here Yeshua Messiah is, as Shaul says, 
of himself elsewhere, quote, of the people of Israel, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, unquote. That's in Philippians 3.5. The very issue of universality, supposedly the distinction between Shaul, again Paul, and Judaism was for him what made it necessary that Yeshua be a Jew. For only through the Jewishness of Yeshua could the covenant of God with Israel, the gracious gifts of God, and his irrevocable calling become available to all people in the whole world, also to the Gentiles, who, quote, were grafted in to share the richness of the olive tree, unquote, namely the people of Israel, Romans 11:17. This is conditional for all believers, not just Gentiles, not just Jews. We must become reconciled to Yeshua, that is, carrying the testimony of Yeshua, and guard the commands of Hashem. That means following God's Torah. This is listed seven times in different words that all mean the same in the book of Revelation. This is the definition of a true believer. You'll also find that in Romans chapters 1 through 3, John chapter 14. Those are just two other places where Yeshua defines a true believer. If you profess to be a child of God, one of the people of God, you have to be grafted in to the covenants of Israel to be a partaker of them. And that's in uh, the book of uh, Ezekiel. No one can consider the topic of Yeshua as rabbi and ignore the subsequent history of the relation between the people to whom Yeshua belonged and the people who belonged to Yeshua. That relationship runs like a red line through much of history of culture, and after the events of the 20th century, we have a unique responsibility to be aware of it as we study the history of the images of Yeshua throughout the centuries. The question is easier to ask than it is to answer, and it's easier to avoid than it is to ask at all. But ask it we must. Would there have been such anti-Semitism where there have been so many pogroms, where there have been an Auschwitz, if every Christian church and every Christian home had focused its devotion upon its images of Mary, not as the mother of God and queen of heaven, but as the Jewish maiden and the new Miriam who gave birth to Yeshua, a Jewish child, the Jewish Messiah of God, and if these same Christians and institutions had not focused upon icons of Christ as only the cosmic Christ, but also had recognized him as Rabbi Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of David, who came to ransom a captive Israel and a captive humanity, would there have been such anti-Semitism? I think not. Shalom. If you enjoy these podcasts, and I hope you do, if you have any comments or questions and you would like me to research something else uh, to talk about, please go to our website at rabdavis.org and click on the Ask the Rabbi link and place your information, and I will be happy to get back with you and address your comments or concerns. Thank you again for listening. May God bless. Amen.